Section 34 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 34 Career of Charlemagne, A.D. 772-814, to by François P. G. Guizot. Hinkmar continues, and supplies details worthy of reproduction, for they give an insight into the imperial government and the action of Charlemagne himself amid those most ancient of the national assemblies. Things went on thus for one or two capitularies, or a greater number, until, with God's help, all the necessities of the occasion were regulated. While these matters were thus proceeding out of the king's presence, the prince himself, in the midst of the multitude, came to the general assembly, who occupied in receiving the presents, saluting the men of most note, conversing with those he saw seldom, showing towards the elder a tender interest, disporting himself with the youngsters and doing the same thing or something like it with the ecclesiastics as well as the seculars however if those who were deliberating about the matter submitted to their examination showed a desire for it the king repaired to them and remained with them as long as they wished and then they reported to him with perfect familiarity what they thought about all matters, and what were the friendly discussions that had arisen among them. I must not forget to say that, if the weather were fine, everything took place in the open air, otherwise in several distinct buildings, where those who had to deliberate on the king's proposals were separated from the multitude of persons come to the assembly, and then the men of greater note were admitted. The places appointed for the meeting of the lords were divided into two parts, in such sort that the bishops, the abbots, and the clerics of high rank might meet without mixture with the laity. In the same way the counts and other chiefs of the state underwent separation in the morning, until, whether the king was present or absent, all were gathered together. Then, the lords above specified, the clerics on their side, and the lakes on theirs repaired to the hall which had been assigned to them and where seats had been with due honour prepared for them when the lords laical and ecclesiastical were thus separated from the multitude it remained in their power to sit separately or together according to the nature of the business they had to deal with ecclesiastical secular or mixed in the same way if they wished to send for any one either to demand refreshment or to put any question, and to dismiss him after getting what they wanted, it was at their option. Thus took place the examination of affairs proposed to them by the king for deliberation. The second business of the king was to ask of each what there was to report to him, or enlighten him touching the part of the kingdom each had come from. Not only was this permitted to all, but they were strictly enjoined to make inquiries during the interval between the assemblies about what happened within or without the kingdom, 
and they were bound to seek knowledge from foreigners as well as natives enemies as well as friends sometimes by employing emissaries and without troubling themselves much about the manner in which they acquired their information the king wished to know whether in any part in any corner of the kingdom the people were restless and what was the cause of their restlessness or whether there had happened any disturbance to which it was necessary to draw the attention of the council-general and other similar matters he sought also to know whether any of the subjugated nations were inclined to revolt whether any of those who had revolted seemed disposed towards submission and whether those that were still independent were threatening the kingdom with any attack on all these subjects whenever there was any manifestation of disorder or danger he demanded chiefly what were the motives or occasion of them there is need of no great reflection to recognize the true character of these assemblies it is clearly imprinted upon the sketch drawn by hinkmar the figure of charlemagne alone fills the picture he is the centrepiece of it and the soul of everything tis he who wills that the national assembly should meet and deliberate tis he who inquires into the state of the country tis he who proposes and approves of or rejects the laws with him rest will and motive initiative and decision he has a mind sufficiently judicious unshackled and elevated to understand that the nation ought not to be left in darkness about its affairs and that he himself has need of communicating with it of gathering information from it and of learning its opinions but we have here no exhibition of great political liberties no people discussing its interests and its business interfering effectually in the adoption of resolutions and in fact taking in its government so active and decisive a part as to have a right to say that it is self-governing or in other words a free people it is charlemagne and he alone who governs it is absolute government marked by prudence ability and grandeur when the mind dwells upon the state of gallo-frankish society in the eighth century there is nothing astonishing in such a fact whether it be civilized or barbarian that which every society needs that which it seeks or demands first of all in its government is a certain degree of good sense and strong will of intelligence and innate influence so far as the public interests are concerned qualities in fact which suffice to keep social order maintained or make it realized and to promote respect for individual rights and the progress of the general well-being this is the essential aim of every community of men and the institutions and guarantees of free government are the means of attaining it it is clear that in the eighth century on the ruins of the roman and beneath the blows of the barbaric world the gallo-frankish nation vast and without cohesion brutish and ignorant was incapable of bringing forth so to speak from its own womb with the aid of its own wisdom and virtue a government of the kind a host of different forces without enlightenment and without restraint were everywhere and incessantly struggling for dominion or in other words were ever troubling and endangering the social condition 
let there but arise in the midst of this chaos of unruly forces and selfish passions a great man one of those elevated minds and strong characters that can understand the essential aim of society and then urge it forward and at the same time keep it well in hand on the roads that lead thereto and such a man will soon seize and exercise the personal power almost of a despot and people will not only make him welcome but even celebrate his praises for they do not quit the substance for the shadow or sacrifice the end to the means such was the empire of charlemagne among analysts and historians some treating him as a mere conqueror and despot have ignored his merits and his glory others that they might admire him without scruple have made of him a founder of free institutions a constitutional monarch both are equally mistaken charlemagne was indeed a conqueror and a despot but by his conquests and his personal power he so long as he was by that is for six and forty years saved gallo-frankish society from barbaric invasion without and anarchy within that is the characteristic of his government and his title to glory what he was in his wars and his general relations with his nation has just been seen he shall now be exhibited in all his administrative activity and his intellectual life as a legislator and as a friend to the human mind the same man will be recognized in every case he will grow in greatness without changing as he appears under his various aspects there are often joined together under the title of capitularis capitula small chapters articles a mass of acts very different in point of dates and objects which are attributed indiscriminately to charlemagne this is a mistake the capitularies are the laws of legislative measures of the Frankish kings, Merovingian as well as Carlovingian. Those of the Merovingians are few in number, and of slight importance, and among those of the Carlovingians, which amount to 152, 65 only are due to Charlemagne. When an attempt is made to classify these last according to their object, it is impossible not to be struck with their incoherent variety, and several of them are such as we should nowadays be surprised to meet with in a code or in a special law. Among Charlemagne's sixty-five capitularies, which contain 1,151 articles, may be counted 87 of morale, 293 of political, 130 of penal, no of civil eighty-five of religious three hundred and five of canonical seventy-three of domestic and twelve of incidental legislation and it must not be supposed that all these articles are really acts of legislation laws properly so called we find among them the texts of ancient national laws revised and promulgated afresh extracts from and additions to these same ancient laws salic lombard and bavarian extracts from acts of councils instructions given by charlemagne to his envoys in the provinces questions that he proposed to put to the bishops or counts 
when they came to the National Assembly. Answers given by Charlemagne to questions addressed to him by the bishops, counts, or commissioners, Misti Dominici. Judgments, decrees, royal pardons, and simple notes that Charlemagne seems to have had written down for himself alone, to remind him of what he proposed to do. In a word, nearly all the various acts which could possibly have to be framed by an earnest, far-sighted, and active government. Often, indeed, these capitularies have no imperative or prohibitive character. They are simple counsels, purely moral precepts. We read therein, for example, Covetousness does consist in desiring that which others possess, and in giving away naught of that which oneself possesses. According to the Apostle, it is the root of the all evil, and hospitality must be practiced. The capitularies which have been classed under the heads of political, penal, and canonical legislation are the most numerous, and are those which bear most decidedly an imperative or prohibitive stamp. Among them a prominent place is held by measures of political economy, administration, and police. You will find therein an attempt to put a fixed price on provisions, a real trial of a maximum for cereals, and a prohibition of mendicity with the following clause. If such mendicants be met with, and they labor not with their hands, let none take thought about giving unto them. The interior police of the palace was regulated thereby, as well as that of the empire. We do will and decree that none of those who serve in our palace shall take leave to receive therein any man who seeketh refuge there and cometh to hide there, by reason of theft, homicide, adultery, or any other crime, that if any free man do break through our interdicts and hide such malefactor in our palace, he shall be bound to carry him on his shoulders to the public quarter and be there tied to the same stake as the malefactor. Certain capitularies have been termed religious legislation, in contradistinction to canonical legislation because they are really admonitions, religious exhortations, addressed not to ecclesiastics alone, but to the faithful, the Christian people in general, and notably characterized by good sense, and, one might almost say, freedom of thought. For example, Beware of venerating the names of martyrs falsely, so called, and the memory of dubious saints. Let none suppose that prayer cannot be made to God, save in three tongues, probably Latin, Greek, and Germanic, or perhaps the vulgar tongue, for the last was really beginning to take form. For God is adored in all tongues, and man is heard if he do but ask for the things that be right. These details are put forward, that a proper idea may be obtained of Charlemagne as a legislator, and of what are called his laws. We have here, it will be seen, no ordinary legislator and no ordinary laws. We see the work, with infinite variations and in disconnected form, of a prodigiously energetic and watchful master, who had to think and provide for everything, who had to be everywhere the moving and the regulating spirit, 
this universal and untiring energy is the grand characteristic of charlemagne's government and was perhaps what made his superiority most incontestable and his power most efficient it is noticeable that the majority of charlemagne's capitularies belong to that epoch of his reign when he was emperor of the west when he was invested with all the splendor of sovereign power of the sixty-five capitularies classed under different heads thirteen only are previous to the twenty-fifth of december eight hundred the date of his coronation as emperor of rome fifty-two are comprised between the years eight hundred and one and eight hundred and four the energy of charlemagne as a warrior and a politician having thus been exhibited it remains to say a few words about his intellectual energy for that is by no means the least original or least grand feature of his character and his influence modern times and civilized society have more than once seen despotic sovereigns filled with distrust towards scholars of exalted intellect especially such as cultivated the moral and political sciences and little inclined to admit them to their favor or to public office there is no knowing whether in our days with our freedom of thought and of the press charlemagne would have been a stranger to this feeling of antipathy but what is certain is that in his day in the midst of a barbaric society there was no inducement to it and that by nature he was not disposed to it his power was not in any respect questioned distinguished intellects were very rare charlemagne had too much need of their services to fear their criticisms and they on their part were more anxious to second his efforts than to show toward him anything like exaction or independence he gave rein therefore without any embarrassment or misgiving to his spontaneous inclination towards them their studies their labors and their influence he drew them into the management of affairs in Guizot's History of Civilization in France, there is a list of the names and works of twenty-three men of the eighth and ninth centuries who have escaped oblivion, and they are all found grouped about Charlemagne as his own habitual advisers, or assigned by him as advisers to his sons Pepin and Louis in Italy and Aquitaine, or sent by him to all points of his empire as his commissioners or charged in his name with important negotiations and those whom he did not employ at a distance formed in his immediate neighborhood a learned and industrious society a school of the palace according to some modern commentators but an academy and not a school according to others devoted rather to conversation than to teaching it probably fulfilled both missions it attended charlemagne at his various residences at one time working for him at questions he invited them to deal with at another giving to the regular components of his court to his children and to himself lessons in the different sciences called liberal grammar rhetoric logic astronomy geometry and even theology and the great religious problems it was beginning to discuss two men alcuin and eginhard have remained justly celebrated in the literary history of the age alcuin was principal director of the school of the palace 
and the favorite, the confidant, the learned adviser of Charlemagne. If your zeal were imitated, said he one day to the emperor, perchance one might see arise in France a new Athens, far more glorious than the ancient, the Athens of Christ. Eginhard, who was younger, received his scientific education in the school of the palace, and was head of the public works to Charlemagne, before becoming his biographer, and, at a later period, the intimate adviser of his son Louis de Debonair. Other scholars of the school of the palace, Angilbert, Laidraid, Adelhard, Agobard, Theodolf, were abbots of St. Requier, or Corby, archbishops of Lyons, and bishops of Orleans. They had all assumed, in the school itself, names illustrious in pagan antiquity. Alcuin called himself Flaccus, Angilbert Homer, Theodolf Pindar. Charlemagne himself had been pleased to take in their society a great name of old, but he had borrowed from the history of the Hebrews. He called himself David, and Eginhard animated, no doubt, by the same sentiments, was Bezalel, the nephew of Moses, to whom God had granted the gift of knowing how to work skillfully in wood and all the materials, which served for the construction of the ark and the tabernacle. Either in the lifetime of their royal patron, or after his death, all these scholars became great dignitaries of the church, or ended their lives in monasteries of note. But so long as they lived, they served Charlemagne or his sons not only with the devotion of faithful advisers, but also as followers proud of the master, who had known how to do them honor by making use of them. It was without effort, and by natural sympathy, that Charlemagne had inspired them with such sentiments, for he too really loved sciences, literature, and such studies as were then possible, and he cultivated them on his own account, and for his own pleasure, as a sort of conquest. It has been doubted whether he could write, and an expression of Eginhard's might authorize such a doubt. But according to other evidence, and even according to the passage in Eginhard, one is inclined to believe merely that Charlemagne strove painfully, and without much success, to write a good hand. He had learned Latin, and he understood Greek. He caused to be commenced, and perhaps himself commenced, the drawing up of the first Germanic grammar. He ordered that the old barbaric poems, in which the deeds and wars of the ancient kings were celebrated, should be collected for posterity. He gave Germanic names to the twelve months of the year. He distinguished the winds by twelve special terms, whereas before his time they had but four designations. He paid great attention to astronomy, being troubled one day at no longer seeing in the firmament one of the known planets, he wrote to Alcuin, What thinkest thou of this Mars, which last year being concealed in the sign of cancer, was intercepted from the sight of men by the light of the sun? Is it the regular course of his revolution? Is it the influence of the sun? Is it a miracle? Could he have been two years about performing the course of a single one? In theological studies and discussions, he exhibited a particular and grave interest. 
It is to him, says Ampere and Horiot, that we must refer the honor of the decision taken in 794 by the Council of Frankfurt in the great dispute about images, a tempered decision which is as far removed from the infatuations of the image-worshippers as from the frenzy of the image-breakers. And at the same time that he thus took part in the great ecclesiastical questions, Charlemagne paid zealous attention to the instruction of the clergy, whose ignorance he deplored. Ah, said he one day, if only I had about me a dozen clerics learned in all the sciences, as Jerome and Augustine were. With all his puissance, it was not in his power to make Jeromes and Augustines, but he laid the foundation in the cathedral churches and the great monasteries of episcopal and cloister schools for the education of ecclesiastics, and carrying his solicitude still further, he recommended to the bishops and abbots that in those schools they should take care to make no difference between the sons of serfs and of free men, so that they might come and sit on the same benches to study grammar, music, and arithmetic. Thus in the eighth century he foreshadowed the extension which, in the nineteenth, was to be accorded to primary instruction, to the advantage and honor not only of the clergy, but also of the whole people. After so much of war and toil at a distance, Charlemagne was now at Aix-la-Chapelle, finding rest in this work of peaceful civilization. He was embellishing the capital which he had founded, and which he called the King's Court. He had built there a grand basilica, magnificently adorned. He was completing his own palace there. He fetched from Italy clerics skilled in church music, a pious joyance to which he was much devoted, and which he recommended to the bishops of his empire. In the outskirts of Aix-la-Chapelle, he gave full scope, says Egenhard, to his delight in riding and hunting. Bath of naturally tepid water gave him great pleasure. Being passionately fond of swimming, he became so dexterous that none could be compared with him. He invited not only his sons, but also his friends, the grandees of his court, and sometimes even the soldiers of his guard, to bathe with him insomuch that there were often a hundred and more persons bathing at a time. When age arrived, he made no alteration in his bodily habits, but at the same time, instead of putting away from him the thought of death, he was much taken up with it, and prepared himself for it with stern severity. He drew up, modified, and completed his will several times over. Three years before his death, he made out the distribution of his treasures, his money, his wardrobe, and all his furniture, in the presence of his friends and his officers, in order that their voice might ensure, after his death, the execution of this partition. And he set down his intentions in this respect in a written summary, in which he massed all his riches in three grand lots. The first two were divided into twenty-one portions, which were to be distributed among the twenty-one metropolitan churches of his empire. After having put these first two lots under seal, he willed to preserve to himself his usual enjoyment of the third, so long as he lived. But after his death, 
or voluntary renunciation of the things of this world, this same lot was to be subdivided into four portions. His intention was that the first should be added to the twenty-one portions which were to go to the metropolitan churches, the second set aside for his sons and daughters, and for the sons of daughters of his sons, and redivided among them in a just and proportionate manner, the third dedicated, according to the usage of Christians, to the necessities of the poor, and lastly, the fourth, distributed in the same way, under the name of alms, among the servants of both sexes of the palace for their lifetime. As for the books which he had amassed, a large number in his library, he decided that those who wished to have them might buy them at their proper value, and that the money which they produced should be distributed among the poor. Having thus carefully regulated his own private affairs and bounty, he, two years later, in 813, took the measures necessary for the regulation after his death of public affairs. He had lost, in 811, his oldest son, Charles, who had been his constant companion in his wars, and in 810 his second son, Pepin, whom he had made king of Italy, and he summoned to his side his third son, Louis, king of Aquitaine, who was destined to succeed him. He ordered the convocation of five local councils which were to assemble at Mayence, Reims, Chalons, Tours, and Aries, for the purpose of bringing about, subject to the king's ratification, the reforms necessary in the church. Passing from the affairs of the church to those of the state, he convoked at Aix-la-Chapelle a general assembly of bishops, abbots, counts, laic grandees, and of the entire people, and holding counsel in his palace with the chief among them, he invited them to make his son Louis king-emperor, whereto all assented, saying that it was very expedient and pleasing also to the people. On Sunday in the next month, August 813, Charlemagne repaired, crown on head, with his son Louis to the cathedral of Aix-la-Chapelle, laid upon the altar another crown, and after praying, addressed to his son a solemn exhortation, respecting all his duties as king towards God and the church, towards his family and his people, asked him if he were fully resolved to fulfill them, and, at the answer that he was, bade him take the crown that lay upon the altar, and place it with his own hands upon his head, which Louis did amidst the acclamations of all present, who cried, Long live the Emperor Louis! Charlemagne then declared his son Emperor jointly with him, and ended the solemnity with these words, Blessed be thou, O Lord God, who has granted me grace to see with mine own eyes my son seated on my throne. And Louis set out again immediately for Aquitaine. He was never to see his father again. Charlemagne, after his son's departure, went out hunting, according to his custom, in the forest of Ardennes, and continued during the whole autumn his usual mode of life. But in January 814 he was taken ill, says Eginhard, of a violent fever which kept him to his bed. Recurring forthwith to the remedy he ordinarily employed against fever, he abstained from all nourishment, 
persuaded that this diet would suffice to drive away, or at the least assuage the malady. But added to the fever came that pain in the side, which the Greeks call pleurisy. Nevertheless, the emperor persisted in his abstinence, supporting his body only by drinks taken at long intervals, and on the seventh day after he had taken to his bed, having received the Holy Communion, he expired about 9 a.m. on Saturday, the 28th of January, 814, in his 71st year. After performance of ablutions and funeral duties, the corpse was carried away and buried, amid the profound mourning of all the people, in the church he had himself had built. And above his tomb there was put up a gilded arcade with his image and this superscription. In this tomb reposes the body of Charles, great and orthodox emperor, who did gloriously extend the kingdom of the Franks, and did govern it happily for forty-seven years. He died at the age of seventy years, in the year of the Lord 814, in the seventh year of the indiction, on the fifth of the calends of February. If we sum up his designs and his achievements, we find an admirably sound idea and a vain dream, a great success, and a great failure. Charlemagne took in hand the work of placing upon a solid foundation the Frankish Christian dominion by stopping, in the north and south, the flood of barbarians and Arabs, paganism and Islamism. In that he succeeded. The inundations of Asiatic populations spent their force in vain against the Gallic frontier. Western and Christian Europe was placed, territorially, beyond reach of attacks from the foreigner and infidel. No sovereign, no human being, perhaps, ever rendered greater service to the civilization of the world. Charlemagne formed another conception and made another attempt. Like more than one great barbaric warrior, he admired the Roman Empire that had fallen, its vastness all in one, and its powerful organization under the hand of a single master. He thought he could resuscitate it, durably, through the victory of a new people and a new faith, by the hand of Franks and Christians. With this view he labored to conquer, convert, and govern. He tried to be, at one and the same time, Caesar, Augustus, and Constantine. And for a moment he appeared to have succeeded, but the appearance passed away with himself. The unity of the empire and the absolute power of the emperor were buried in his grave. The Christian religion and human liberty set to work to prepare for Europe, other governments, and other destinies. End of section 34